Batman Family Reunion, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am Paul Ken, one of your hosts, and with me is my co-host and bat cousin, Sean M. Myers. What's going on, Sean? I am happy to be here, and I am really happy because Grandpa Lewis is here, and he's bringing Grandpa Lewis's lemon bars. Nice. They are pretty good, but my favorite is Grandpa Douglas's devil food cake. But after that, my activity I'm going to try is the back-to-back double flip race against Batgirl and Robin. <laughs> so I don't know if, if we can beat them, but we got to try that out. We lost against Chris last episode. I don't think we're going to win against Batgirl and Robin. Yeah, maybe not. How about you just tell all the folks at home about the show? Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978 and then rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints, before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man-Bat, and even Black Lightning and the Adam. <laughs> Both of your hosts collected and read these comics as they came out and are excited to share their love of this era at the Batman family reunion. Hey, Paul, if you have 50 cents, let's buy this book and dive into issue number four. You got it. Let's take the Wayback Machine to the month of February 1976 when this comic was released. It's got a cover date of May slash June of 1976. Unfortunately, our 50 cents buys us a little less this time, Sean. We are now a 48-page comic. Still says Giant at the top. In it, we've got three stories. One new story, obviously, with Batgirl and Robin, along with two reprints. And the cover artist is Ernie Chan. So the cover is one of those infamous boxed covers that I'm not happy about, although there is a redeeming grace. So you have the Batman family logo, the giant dress. The main image is Batgirl with Robin on her shoulders, doing shoulder-to-shoulder, back-to-back. And she says, your turn, Robin. And then Robin flips down. I'm sorry, Robin's kicking a bad guy and then Robin flips down and Batgirl kicks the other bad guy with her feet. It's a very great sense of motion and dynamism. You can really see Robin like kicking forward when he's up in the air. He's angled expertly and they even have like a little impact symbol when he's when he hits the ground and then underneath them is a little banner with extra ace the bat hound and the signal man plus special features and then to the left is a drawing of Batgirl and Robin and that's actually kind of my only fault and that's with an asterisk with this is Robin kind of looks here like he's maybe like 11 or 12 years <laughs> yeah, he old. He does look a little young on that one. <laughs> instead of 18. Now, to some degree, I like it because a lot of times when artists draw Teen Titans, they're just like miniature adults. They don't really look like kids because kids' proportions are different than adults. But here, like, it's not really about the story because in the story, he's 18. But here, he looks younger. And even, even in the cover, he kind of looks a little bit younger. Well, I really like this cover for a couple of reasons. First of all, there are four images of each of Batgirl and Robin on this cover. In case you didn't realize who is mm, starring this, mm. there's two in, of each in the main box because they're flipping, they're showing that action. There's the side panel with the full body shots of each, right? And then at the top, there's little heads of Batgirl and Robin. The other remarkable thing that I like is the smiles on Batgirl and Robin's face. They're having a good time knocking these thugs out with their the double backflip maneuver here. So I thought that was pretty cool. I like the red in the Batman family logo. That really pops against the blue background. It's great because it shows the teamwork. I think it's pretty terrific, but I'm going to see if I can stump you, Sean. There's one thing unique about this cover 
relative to the prior covers that I'm going to see if you can catch. Oh, I'm sure I won't. But <laughs> and of course, the other covers are just out of reach. I, I can see them stacked, <laughs> stacked up, stacked up, but I can't even see them. I'll, I'll put you uh, out of your misery. You want to put you out of your misery? Oh, wait, wait. I, I actually think I, the UPC code. Yes, it's the first issue uh, with the UPC code. The prior issues did not have it, but now the you don't notice it anymore because they're everywhere. They're on everything yeah. we buy, every comic book we buy, everything. And so prior issues did not have the UPC code. So first issue of that. And one thing I will appreciate, so people know, people by now, in the ripe old age of five episodes in, no, I'm not a fan of the boxed covers. However, to a small degree, I'm willing to say it might work here because the bad guys are like being pushed above the, they're breaking the panel border, the box border. So I do kind of like that part of it. Yeah, that always is cool. Like the dinosaur was right. Yep. jumping out in issue number three. So I agree. We will post the image of this cover, of course, as well as some additional pages in the Family Portrait Gallery. Sean, what is that website again? That website address is fireandwaterpodcast.com. All right. So story number one is an 18-pager starring Batgirl and Robin entitled The Princess and the Vagabond. It's again by Elliot S. Magan, but this time he's got his buddy with him, Carrie Bates. So the two of them collaborated on this story. Out of four sets of new stories, entirely yet another art team. This one, it's Kurt Swan, inked by Vince Coletta. It is reprinted, the story, in both Batgirl, The Bronze Age Omnibus, Volume 1, and Robin, The Bronze Age Omnibus. So our story begins at good old Hudson University, where Alexi Brund, the famed Eastern European a vagabond storyteller, is given a speech. Alexei has left his country of repression behind. He skips the reception, though, and he sneaks out with Jack Corley, who happens to be the son of the governor, and Dick Grayson, who happens to have led the sheltered life of a big city rich kid, according to Jack. They are going to show him America from Dick's cargo van. Meanwhile, in our nation's capital, our favorite congresswoman, Babs Gordon, has been assigned to overlook the activities of Princess Evelina, since Babs is probably the only female congressperson at this time. Evelina is visiting the U.S. on a political assignment from her postage stamp kingdom as its best advocate for, quote, freedom and social justice, according to the cameoing Clark Kent, who unsurprisingly looks very on model, given that Kurt Swan drew this story. <laughs> anyway, Later, Babs protects the princess, his Batgirl, when she's attacked by some jewel thieves in an elevator. However, the jewel heist was a front for the criminal organization Maze, who observed this activity and concluded that the princess had a secret bodyguard, Batgirl. Strangely, at this time, though, we find the boys at a coal mine in West Virginia, where Robin has to save a cute blonde who has gotten stuck in a giant mining shovel. That sentence was accurate, folks. Her name is Skippy, and she recognizes Alexi right away. That's not foreshadowing at all. She says she's on her way to Florida and asks if she can hitch a ride with the boys as far as Washington. Sure, say the boys. She suggests that they visit the Lincoln Memorial. After finding out the princess will be there too. How? From her secret radio hookup to Maze. The next morning, Babs is on her way to meet Evelina, but there is a fire across the street from the princess's hotel. Of course, the domino daredevil has to help, but Batgirl falls into a trap prepared by Maze, and she is left tied up in a condemned building that is about to be demolished. At this point, the evil genius organization Maze reveals their plan to her, 
they show her a double of Alexei, who Maze plans to use to assassinate Evelina while discrediting Alexei at the same time. On the way to the Lincoln Memorial, Skippy uses knockout gas to take control of Dick's groovy van. She leaves Dick and Jack behind and takes Alexei with her. When Dick recovers, he switches into Robin and makes his way to the Capitol, sort of hitchhiking. Of course, after escaping their respective predicaments, Batgirl and Robin arrive just in time, at the same time, to prevent the murder. And of course, the whole event is reported live by who else but Clark Kent. After the criminals are captured, Batgirl and Robin go to Maze's headquarters and take out the rest of the gang. That's where they get to use that nifty back-to-back flip we saw on the cover. Later, Babs and Dick get interviewed by Clark. There he is again, who coins the title of the saga. But the important thing is Evelina and Alexi get to hold hands in front of a giant Abraham Lincoln. Whew! Sean, what did you think of this action-packed story? I do like this story. It is very down-to-earth, very, I guess, relatable. Theoretically, it is something that could happen. The double, maybe, maybe not but we'll kind of circle around to that a little bit later. I really liked it. I'm really impressed with Elliot S. Magan and Carrie Bates. Obviously, they're great comic book writers, but they really do a good job, a great job of explaining every beat of the story. Because a lot of times, and I love background Robin stories, but a lot of times you have that last exposition page where they explain <laughs> everything that's happened. up to Like the- in Super Friends, that happens all the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Yeah, it really is. But here, like it's spooled out throughout the story beat by beat. It's just so well done. It's so, it's set up so well. Yeah, I'm not reading ahead, but I did happen to notice that we are going to see Maze again. Hydra, they're not. <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see them again. You know, one thing that's cool for me is we do see Princess Evelina again. She shows up in Super Friends number 11, dated April, May of 1978, published just under two years from now. The reason that's special to me is that's actually the issue I discussed with Rob on my first ever podcast appearance on For All Mankind, episode 11. So that was kind of a neat connection for me. Art-wise, it's kind of disappointing after my growl and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, that we get Kurt Swan, but he does a pretty good job here, I thought. I am impressed with Kurt Swan on this issue because I grew up reading Superman comics. Like, I I absolutely loved them. But even then at the time, and I know this is going to sound like it's heresy or a horrible thing to say, I'm not a really big fan of Kurt Swan's Superman. Like, to me, he was always too, like, boxy, too square, too almost rigid. Yeah. We could start another Twinkie-style argument between (laughs) Rob and Chris Franklin, who I know is a big fan. But his Batgirl, I think his Batgirl is really, really, surprisingly for me, really a sexy Batgirl. I like her a lot. Robin looks great. And even Jack Corley, who I wish would be a major thing, he's just so handsome and good-looking. He kind of reminds me maybe, like, James MacArthur back in Swiss Family Robinson. So I had like a crush on him, especially, you know, we're talking about Grell and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, who has such great dynamism and activity. But when Batgirl's like swinging around the elevator cord and then kicks both of them with her feet, that's such a great sense of action. And now again, he's no Grell, but I liked it. I think it's a fine job. Yeah, that page, while we're talking about it, page five of the story is great. What happens, and we'll put this page for sure in the uh, gallery, but Batgirl opens the stalled elevator from above and sees that the two guys are on top of the elevator heisting the jewels and jumps onto the cables and spins around the cables while they're trying to shoot her and they can't. And then as she spins down, then she 
clocks them both with her feet and then peeks in the hole to say, hey, princess, you're okay. That's a really good action scene. I want to jump back a little bit. The scene in the splash page does not occur in the story, but I do I do kind of like it. It's framed well. You've got the princess and the vagabond on the TV screens. You got Batgirl and Robin coming in. These amazed uh, guys saying, oh no, they're here. They got one guy's like, what are you waiting for? Their autographs? Kill them. <laughs> I do think it's funny how Alexi speaks. I am thanking you muchly for your help. I am not liking the guided tour your government has planned for me. So I am appreciating your offer to show me the real America. Although I'm not really a big fan of it, in my mind, I kept hearing bulky from Perfect Strangers. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. You know, Maze, they don't invest very heavily on their branding on page three. Their their logo (laughs) on the wall is just the letters at Maze, M-A-Z-E. We talked about pages four and five, good scene. Okay, Sean, if you had to go on a tour of America, what the heck? A coal mining mine in West Virginia with a giant scoop? Is that where you would take your Eastern European vagabond poet friend? Maybe this is analogous to something that was happening at the time that we just don't get. Because they talk about how it used to be a mountain, and now it's being turned into heat and sent into space. I don't know. Did not get that at all. But hey, I'm the guy that still hasn't gotten the Monty Python references, so maybe (laughs) Siskoid can clue us in on that one. I did not get that reference if it was one either. And then the girl is inside this giant scoop. So think about it. If you look at the top of page, I guess it's page seven, she's a tiny figure in this giant scoop. Think about the size of that scoop relative to the size of the woman in there. And what was her plan for escape? I mean, she didn't, couldn't have planned on Robin being there because she faints. That's why she doesn't see Robin. So I, I don't understand her plan whatsoever. All I took away from these pages is three guys are going out in a van together and it gets ruined by some woman showing up. (laughs) That's the credo I live by. (laughs) So then we see Babs, of course, is in a a hotel that happens to be right next to a condemned building that gets set on fire. She looks out her window. She's got a great view of that condemned building. Well, yes, but this is where I'm sticking up for Elliot and Carrie. They've set it in motion that Maze thought the princess was going to be protected by someone. That was the elevator ruse. So they know it's Batgirl. They know Batgirl is in D.C. I don't think they knew that she was staying right beside the abandoned hotel or building or whatever. But it is something to draw Batgirl out. That was their plan. I agree. And at the top of that page, Skippy is very attractively drawn by Kurt and uh, Vince Coletta. I think Vince Coletta, if he spent any time on this issue, he spent a little extra time on the <laughs> women figures because they do look quite fetching. I like Batgirl's escape yeah. from the condemned building. And we'll probably put this page in there. She's hanging from a light fixture. She she flips up, puts her feet on the ceiling, rips the light fixture down. And then as the wrecking ball comes in, she jumps on the top of the wrecking ball and rides it out. <laughs> I will say the obvious, she came in like a wrecking ball, just like Miley Cyrus. Absolutely. <laughs> I can't help but think this inspired the songwriters of that in some way. <laughs> Miley Cyrus, I'm sure she read Batman Family back in the day. What do you think of Robin's stunt? Lassoing the car who doesn't stop to pick him up and then skating on it in his booties like he's water skiing without water or skis. I love it. These two pages, and they are like side by side on the issue. They're very exciting. First of all, it looks like there's probably 123 panels on both of these pages. <laughs> uh, but but it's, yeah, I swear, it is never cluttered. You can follow 
the action. I love it. Yeah. Is it realistic? It probably isn't realistic, but I'm going to say it's believable. He's a circus acrobat. Maybe there was a clown car at the Hill Brothers Circus that he used to ride on and jump on on top. Dead man's brother must have <laughs> driven the clown Yes, car. yes. I like that synergy. And being selfish, there is a fantastic panel of Robin jumping up on the car. So automatically, this is so far maybe the best issue ever of Batman. <laughs> but too, I like that the driver says, oh, only the real Robin doesn't even finish it because you're expecting to say, could perform a stunt like that. He's like, okay, pal, hang on. And then they show up in Washington and Batgirl slams the door on Skippy, which I was like, ow, that really looks like it hurts. I love That's it. That's the uh, swinging around by the neck category of ouches in Batman family. <laughs> And then they go and then they just wrap up the bad guys pretty quick. We get the backflip. So they do get the backflip. And the way Batgirl takes out the last goon is by as she's flipping back. So she's sort of upside down. Somehow she loosens her boot and sends her boot flying to whack the guy in the face and knocks him out. That's pretty cool. I have to admit, even though your boots can't be that. I mean, they were in skin tight costumes and it's not like that's easy to do, but I uh, did appreciate that. That's a pretty cool scene. I was surprised to learn that her outfit is more like nylons where it cover, And I'm being serious, like where it covers her foot entirely instead of just breaking at the ankle. Cause that's always what like I had assumed. You need socks in case your feet get cold, John. I always like when we see uniforms and costumes that aren't how they're normally presented. Like sometimes Robin would open up things on his tunic and it would be open or here, like where you see the boot coming off. I always like to see that. Well, in her original appearance, how she turned her skirt into yeah. a cape. I don't get, after all the time we've talking about how they're becoming good friends, Robin's kind of trying to make a move at the bottom of that page. He goes, nice warm up, BG. Kind of gets you ready for some real action, yes? And she's like, hey, uh, hands off, stay loose, boy. We've got a couple of friends to check up on. He's like, well, didn't that kiss teach you a lesson? Yeah, exactly. And he looks very young on the final page. Yeah. It's interesting with the Vagabond and the princess. I am wondering, like, are they supposed to be stand-ins for someone of the era? Alexi's a writer, but you kind of get he's a Bob Dylan kind of figure. Although he's a writer, is that like Jack, Jack Kerouac or Bob Dylan? He's some or... sort of dissident from Eastern Europe. That's why he's over in America. And she's, I don't quite get where her country is. I, I don't know. I don't know if about the tiny country geopolitics of the 1970s. But yeah, I hear you. They end up together, so to speak, where she has to teach him and he has to teach her about his poetry and all that kind of nonsense. Unless you have anything to add, I think we can easily take a trip to Gabriel's Horn. The hip happening hangout for the Teen Titans in the 1970s. We talk about the most 1970s moment in the Batgirl Robin story. Paul, do you have anything? I had a couple possibles, right? One was the hitchhiking. Once again, we see hitchhiking, in fact, twice. Skippy hitchhikes and then Robin tries to hitchhike unsuccessfully. Then I was thinking about the book them for armed robbery that uh, Batgirl says, which sort of like sounds like Dragnet. Where I ended up, though, is Maze's computers. <laughs> if you go back and look at their headquarters, their computers have the big spinning wheels and the giant screen and the buttons and, and all that kind of stuff. So my pick for Gabriel's Horn is Maze's computers. How about you? What did you have? Uh, so your picks are definitely 10,000% better than mine. I did have hitchhiking, so I crossed that off. I said maybe the whole finding America and seeing America. I think that did really start in the 60s, but I think it was a carryover from that. Still a thing in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing I had is Babs is a congresswoman, but because this is 1976, 
I think that did factor into them featuring DC so prominently because the Bicentennial was just so in fashion and everyone loved that, especially with, and they're not necessarily like correct, but all of the sites of DC, like you see the Capitol building and the Lincoln Memorial, all of that. So I think that kind of plays a part for, for Gabriel's horn. Link to the Bicentennial. Sure. The seminal moment of the 70s, right, is the Bicentennial. My last one is the double of Alexi. I think that kind of seems to be a staple of like <laughs> 70s spy shows and cop shows. I could see this on like the Mod Squad or something like that. All right. You want to move on to the second story? Absolutely. The best story of the issue. Oh, I'm sorry. The second story of the issue <laughs> is titled Ace the Bathound. Starring Batman, Robin, and Ace in his first appearance. It's eight pages, and the writer is Bill Finger. Sheldon Mordorf is the penciler. Stan Kay is the inker. And it originally appeared in Batman number 92 from 1955. Now, before I start this synopsis, I'd like to say that dogs are the greatest creation on this earth. Braver than Rin Tin Tin. Bolder than Lassie. Better built than Beethoven. It's Ace, the Bat Hound. The splash panel features our Ace in a beautiful pose, majestically looking at the bat signal as it blazes the night sky. The story proper opens with Batman and Robin saving the life of a knocked groggy dog as it tries to swim across a river. Taking him back to the bat cave, a found dog notice is placed in the Underworld Star, or um, I mean the Gotham Gazette, I suppose listing Bruce Wayne as the person who found the hound. The notice features a glamour shot's portrait of Ace showing off his distinct forehead mark. Because dogs are the greatest creation on this earth, the pooch trails after Batman and Robin as they head to police headquarters. While Batman is inside talking to Commissioner Gordon about Toto and Balto, Robin has fashioned a bat collar and mask to cover up the telltale mark on Ace's forehead. B-A-R- Batman, Ace, and Robin sneak into the Stevens warehouse to try and stop Burt Bowers, an escaped convict. And because dogs are the greatest creation on this earth, Ace stops Bowers when the dynamic duo couldn't. The next day, Bruce receives a call letting him know that the dog in the ad looks like Ace, John Wilker's dog. They go to Wilker's house to return Ace, but discover that he's been taken away by force. They figure out that he works for the Gotham Printing and Engraving Company. But when they check there, they found out that Wilker hasn't been at his job for two days. Later at the Batcave, the bat signal is seen. And because dogs are the greatest creation on this earth, Ace rushes forward to go on another mission to keep Batman and Robin safe. Two missions, actually, because not only has there been a paper company robbery, but a four-year-old boy has wandered away from his home. Robin takes Ace to the Lost Boy's home, and because dogs are the greatest creation on this earth, Ace sniffs him out in no time flat. The two of them head on over to the paper company to join Batman. And when Ace starts growling, Batman realizes that Ace recognizes the scent of the people who abducted Wilkers and surmises that the gang will have hit the Eastern Printing Ink Company next. Before they get there, Batman tells Robin that John Wilker was abducted so that he could engrave and print counterfeit money. When they pull up to the printing company, Ace springs out of the Batmobile to run to the aid of Wilker because dogs are the greatest creation on this earth. One of the bad guys knocks out Ace and then takes BNR and Wilker to the outskirts of the city to their hideaway. While there, BNR pulled the old 
Jim Gordon is bored routine and shine a bat signal into the sky, which brings Ace to their rescue because dogs are the greatest creation on this earth. What did you think, Paul? This is a very charming story without question. It's interesting that they didn't just get a dog, right? That they had to have somebody else's dog. I guess they couldn't permanently have a dog in Wayne Manor. I've always loved the look of Ace with his little mask and his dog collar with the bat signal on it. There's even an in-story reason for that, that he's got a distinctive mark on his forehead, which I thought that was pretty clever. The whole story is well-structured. Ace needs to keep helping because he's going to find his master, right? It's awfully cute that he finds the little boy stuck in the pipe. I mean, that's just adorable. But the rest of it is about him finding his master and stopping this counterfeit ring, which I think is all pretty cool. No surprise. I love Ace. Oh my gosh. I love Ace so much. Now, part of it is growing up, we had German shepherds and it doesn't necessarily say it, but Ace definitely looks like he would be a German Shepherd. As a breed, it makes sense that he would be a German Shepherd. The fact that he has a mark and needs to hide it and wears a mask, I love it. This is another story that's really, really well-constructed because everything is explained. Yeah, it's not Bruce Wayne's dog. They didn't just get a dog. But also, too, like how he needs a mask because Bruce put the notice in the newspaper. Ace definitely isn't invulnerable. Like he gets knocked out twice in the story. But also like when he finds the little boy in the pipe, the boy's not afraid of the dog. He's like, nice doggy. I know, that's right. The dog does not strike fear into the heart. No. <laughs> I think it's charming how much Robin really likes Ace. He's just a boy who loves his dog. In the first page, he's got this very distressed face. He's like, Batman, look, that poor dog is sinking. We got to save him. And then he's just so proud of the fact that he sat in the Batmobile while Batman went inside and made this mask for Ace. He's just so proud. He says, you know, I cut him the mask from our black cloth tool bag. I guess they keep a tool bag in the backseat of the Batmobile. They got lots of things in that bubble Batmobile. Let me tell you, it fits a lot of people as we know. You can see how the chain of thought, okay, we want Batman to have a dog. Okay, he needs to have a mask so he looks like Batman. Well, why would a dog wear a mask? Well, maybe he's got a distinctive mark. You know, you can see how the logic of the story construction... But overall, it holds together very well. One thing I will say about the distinct mark, I've worked at several places over the years that have sold calendars. And of course, every year, every dog breed, every cat breed has a calendar. And inevitably, people are looking at the calendar and there's at least 12 images in every calendar. And you always hear somebody talk to another person. Oh my God, that looks just like Trixie. Or, oh my God, that looks just like Ronaldo. Well, of course, because for the most part, unless there's a distinct mark or something, dog breeds look alike. So I love that they gave him the the mark on his forehead. It's cool that his mask has the white eyes, just like Batman and Robin's. (laughs) Robin has that special material hanging out in the tool bag. One thing I thought you would appreciate, Paul, on page one, two, three, four, on page five of the story, the middle panel where Batman is headed off, it's just Robin and Ace in the Batmobile. It looks so tight in there. It looks like it hardly fit the two of them. When a couple pages earlier, you saw all three of them fitting comfortably. That technology of the bubble Batmobile is pretty sweet. You mentioned it once again, a bat signal is created. I don't know what it is with the teeth and the ripping the bat signal off of Batman's chest with Robin with his teeth. I don't know about that, but somehow they make a bat signal and that's what brings Ace. For once in my life, I was going to show restraint and not bring that up. (laughs) (laughs) And also on the previous page, the panel of Ace 
where he's growling. Oh my God, I love that. He's like, and just the angle of it. Oh my God, I love it. That's what dogs do. They crouch down like that. You can see the hair is like standing up. Well, this is Sheldon Moldoff. We talked about him. He, he was a talented guy. Worked all those years for good reason. And another thing in my comic book research, which means looking up Mike's amazing comic. I am so happy to report that has more appearances than Aunt Harriet. <laughs> Ace has 24 appearances, all of them in Batman Detective and World's Final. The first one is 1955. The last one is 1964. That's a nice long run. And of course, Ace still shows up in oh, yeah. stuff today. He was in like Crypto Show. I think he's on Justice League Action. He might have been in the Brave and the Bold cartoon too. I don't recall. And probably like the two biggest Batman Beyond. And coming up, DC League of Super Pets. He's going to be in right. there. He's got somebody cool doing his voice. Because isn't The Rock is crypto, right? Kevin Hart, I think. Is that who? Yeah, I think it's Kevin Hart. I think so, yeah. Ace. Well, Sean, if you're done waxing Ace's coat, <laughs> I'm going to jump into a little bit of bat history. So this month, I picked Stan K. Stan K was the inker of the Ace the Bat Hound story. Uh, most of the information uh, I'm about to tell you comes from the DC Wiki, which is dc.fandom.com. And Todd Klein, the famous letterer, has a blog and had a couple of articles about Stan K, which I thought was pretty interesting. Stan K was originally born Stanley Ravinus. He was born in November of 1916 in Brooklyn. He was not even two years old yet when his father died of tuberculosis in 1918. He was then adopted by a stepfather a few years later after his mother remarried, and he took the last name Kalinowski. Then he graduated from John Adams High School in Queens. He attended Sign Painter School and went to work for famous muralist, William McKay. So an example of William McKay, he's got a famous mural that's in the Natural History Museum in New York. It's the grand entrance of the Theodore Roosevelt Rotunda. It's a 5,200 square feet gigantic installation. It was originally completed in 1935 by William McKay, and recently, about 10 years ago, was restored to its former glory. And it's not clear if Stan Kay assisted him on this, but I thought that was a neat thing. One story about how he shortened his name from Kalinowski to Kay was that McKay shortened it to K since he complained that Kalinowski was too long to write on a paycheck. His daughter-in-law said that was one possibility, but she said it was also probably due to the general prejudice of the time. And after the Great Depression, people wanted every edge they could to get a job. In any event, Stan used Stan K from then on, but it was not until he married in August of 1945 that he legally changed his name to K, K-A-Y-E. One other thing, during the 30s, he also worked as an assistant to an illustrator and muralist by the name of Dean Cornwall. And since Cornwall was left-handed, Kay actually learned to paint in a left-handed manner in order to properly mimic his work. So he's an ambidextrous artist. I thought that was neat. You notice I didn't say anything about World War II. He was exempt from the military when, during his entrance exam, they found scar tissue on his lungs, saying he had had tuberculosis, but he never actually knew that but he was not eligible for the military because of that. You know, obviously his, his dad died of it back then, but he didn't even realize that he had it. But that did enable him to start working at DC in the 1940s. He began on gag strips, such as something called Drafty. And the one I have heard of is Genius Jones. The Genius Jones appeared in more fun comics and adventure comics and was created by Alfred Bester, the sci-fi writer. And Stan Kay apparently designed Genius, Jones, Genius Jones's, boy, that's hard to say, costume, with purple gray tights, a red cape, and a yellow helmet. And even after Bester left to write science fiction novels, Stan continued working on Genius Jones. So Stan's more popularly credited with his inks on Superman after being paired up with fellow artist Wayne Boring. So that's where we've seen him a lot, Wayne Boring and Stan Kay. 
They did the Sunday strip for Superman. Throughout the 40s, their covers and art dominated DC's stands. He did begin inking some of the Batman interiors, late 40s, and numerous Superboy stories from 55 to 60. And then Kurt Swan's pencils were inked by Stan for the 1953 3D Superman comic. So he worked on that 3D Superman comic in 1953. He retired from DC in 1962 and relocated to Racine, Wisconsin, where he worked on his father-in-law's manufacturing business until 67 when he died of heart failure. He has over 600 story credits, all for DC, according to Mike's Amazing World. He's listed as an artist, as penciler, but mostly as an inker. So he had a great career working for DC for 25 years or so. That is Stan Kett. While my cousin Paul was telling you all of that, I looked up the McKay mural. I have seen that. Just hearing about it, I didn't know what it was. As soon as I saw it, I'm like, oh yes, I, I've seen that before. So yeah, I wish I could have found out that Stan K helped him, but the time period's right, but I couldn't find any reference who assisted McKay on that mural. So our second break segment is that branding, where we go through ads, letters, pages, text pages throughout the issue. So Sean, you want to kick us off? Now, unfortunately, it's very easy for me to access the first ad because the comic I hold in my hands that has been read so much, the cover is off of the issue. So it makes it easy to access the inside front cover, which is my favorite Shazam, Captain Marvel, and a Twinkies ad, mm, deliciousness. Now, the interesting thing about this ad, so you think these are just made up and fake, but Aunt Minerva has a plan to make people think that they don't like Hostess Twinkies. And I can't help but think, this has gone on to infect some of the listeners here. Yeah, like the ones in Canada and the UK, those. I think what's happened is the people who say they don't like Twinkies, like they're still under this mind <laughs> thing. So I, I feel bad for them. Now, not so bad because they give me the Twinkies they don't want. So I think maybe I'll still let it go on. But this, of course, is one of the best ads ever. Real quick, I have to mention in the middle of the Batgirl Robin story, uh, right, right after Batgirl is breaking up the elevator heist, there's an ad for Charms Pops, which I think was some sort of a takeoff on Tootsie Pops. And it looks like my eight-year-old nephew, Paul, drew this. I don't know how this got into a professional publication. So it's a horrible ad, but... It does bring up an interesting conundrum because, of course, we had the Twinkies versus Fruit Pies. Well, now we have Charms, Charms Blow Pops, and Tootsie Pops enter the fray. Now it's like a melee. All you listeners, tell us which ones you like. Did you like Twinkies better, Charms, Charms? I love Charms Blow Pops. I'm going all in on Tootsie Pops. So we'll let our listeners, I don't know if we want to get to another sweet confection argument in the uh, comments page, but if you have any opinion of Charms versus Tootsie Pops, let us hear it. My favorite at the moment is still Twinkies with Charms Blow Pops coming in second. So now the next ad we're going to talk about is a beautiful, beautiful ad featuring two, not treasuries, as I've been told, but limited collector's edition. The top one is Batman. And the great thing is Paul and I guested on Treasury Cast talking about this very treasury. And the second treasury that is discussed is more secret origins of supervillains which I hold in my hands right now. Ah, nice. I do love it. Unfortunately, it's when the treasury page count was at a lesser amount. So you don't get as many stories. And also it's a little misleading because running the pack of villains busting through the superhero billboard is bizarro. 
And he only gets like a paragraph in the middle. <laughs> in the middle are all these little, little tiny wanted posters. Oh, very cool. So he gets a, like a one paragraph origin. But the complete stories in that issue are the Catwoman, the Mirror Master, Mr. Mixia Spitalik, and the Cheetah. Inside the back cover is a Dr. Hero, every hero's enemy, <laughs> because he wandered around from hero to hero hoping to defeat someone and there's also another treasury ad in this issue it's like one of the basic ones that have just the covers of the treasuries and you pick which one you want so it's super friends dick tracy a bunch of famous first editions ghosts tarzan the bible shazam one shazam two batman the first secret origins of supervillains with that great cover running towards each other. Superman and his kid pals, a bunch of greatness on the page. So the next item is the letters page, Batmail family. And I have to own it that Michael D. Dargay from Royal Oak, Michigan, knew more about Monty Python than, than I did. He pulls out that who else would use a line straight from Monty Python's flying circus than uh, Elliot Magan? Nobody expects a Spanish Inquisition. So he figured it out again, uh, owning it. But what I did find interesting, Sean, is we got another letter from Bob Rohde, who you talked about last month. And he talks about that the plots of these stories are kind of a little silly. And we had a chuckle over the projectors, you know, the uh, Island of a Thousand Thrills and all that. But he does think that even though his plotting was weak, he really enjoyed the connections that Batgirl and Robin and the characterization and things like that, which is kind of what we've been saying. So he he's catching that back in 1975, 1976. So I thought that was a neat letter from Bob Rohde. He loves the Batgirl-Robin team. He thinks they are a great combination. He's just a little disappointed with how they're being used. And the story in this issue probably... Hopefully he wrote in a letter about this one and we'll read it in a couple of issues because this one is much more down to earth and relatable. This one has a much more logical plot. Absolutely. And also Wilson Rivera says that he is all for a Batgirl Robin romance. If older men can go out with younger women, why can't the reverse be true? Wilson had a crush on his French teacher, I think. <laughs> and even though we didn't read Brian Scott's letter, we are inviting Brian Scott, Michael Dargay, Bob Rohde, and Wilson Rivera. If you're listening to this please come to the reunion we want to hear your thoughts about having a letter published in this issue we'd be happy to hear from you and our last special feature is the batman's rogues gallery on the inside last page of the actual physical comic itself not the cover and it gives the stories behind the signal man the mad hatter and the blockbuster interestingly the signal man his name is revealed here on this page but not in the story. And it is interesting because he actually posed as another villain called the Blue Bowman. And I had no idea that had happened. Yeah, we talked about it before we went on air. I either forgot that or didn't know it because I had no recollection of him being the Blue Bowman. And the next one is the Mad Hatter. And it's a little spoiler alert because it says, and here's the villain who will be featured in the next issue of the Batman family, the Mad Hatter. And it talks about Jervis touch and how he always wanted to have Batman's cow and whether or not he got it or not. And the last one is a villain who I really like, the Blockbuster. He's kind of like regular looking version of the Hulk in a way. But the interesting thing is he hates Batman. But as a child, Bruce Wayne saved him from drowning at summer camp. So he likes and trusts Bruce Wayne. And then that's always an interesting way for Batman to get out of traps that he's in with the blockbuster. Ready to move on to story number three? Story number three, because we have to. The title is The Signs of the Signal Man, starring 
Batman and Robin. It's an eight-page story written by Bill Finger, penciled by Sheldon Mordor, but this time the anchor is Charles Paris, and it originally appeared in Batman number 124 from 1959. You know your good-for-nothing 22-year-old nephew who still has his grandmother pay his cell phone bill? You know that aunt who you only see once a year, thank goodness, who asks when you're finally going to meet a nice girl and get married? You know that cousin who doesn't understand why he has to press number one for English? Well, the Batman Family Reunion would like to introduce you to Signal Man. The three-quarters page splash kicks off the story with Batman and the Signal Man fighting atop a macro microscope while Robin watches from a stupendous scales of justice. Our proper story begins with the Signal Man, whose real name is never told to us in this story, Michael Phelps his way out of prison. A quick hideously garish costume change later finds him begging some goons to be part of his hired mob. They want none of it, which sends the signal man shame spiraling into stealing the Riddler's motif of sending clues or uh, signals to Batman to alert him to his future crimes. His first clue sends Batman and Robin to a showboat theater, which is really only one rung above being part of a dinner theater show. So why is the signal man stealing from people who are already so down on their luck? Undoubtedly, the most exciting part of the story happens when the signal man throws a stick of dynamite up to the boat's smokestack, which causes it to crash on the deck, starting a massive raging fire. With speed being of the utmost importance to save the lives of all the actors performing cats on board, Batman performs undoubtedly the smartest possible thing to quickly extinguish a roaring inferno. He ties rows and rows of buckets to each individual paddle of the huge paddle wheel boat, which causes a huge cascade of water to completely eliminate the flames. Completely eliminate the flames. Yep, completely eliminate the flames. <sighs> the next day, the signal man's clues send BNR to a movie studio. Miracle Pictures, where if it's a good movie, it's a miracle. Listeners, I stole that line from somewhere, but I forget what movie or show it's from. So if you know, please let me know. Where they are filming a new version of Robin Hood. The signal man steals Maid Marian's necklace and escapes capture from BNR. Boy, howdy. Those hired thugs will be forming lines around the block to join the signal man's gang now. The next day, it sure has been a busy week in Gotham. The signal man sends BNR Amigo Bat Signal Flashlight, which means this time it's personal. Our scene shifts to an exhibition hall where honorary police badges that have been given to Batman from countries all around the world are on display. The signal man looks like Clark Kent, but sure doesn't act like him when he puts the guard to sleep with some knockout gas. BNR try to stop the signal man, but he stops them by throwing the badge display at him. He then runs into the next room, which is filled with huge sprangs. That's our new generic term for large prop objects. Batman punches the signal man. The story is over, and all of the thugs have decided to work for a truly worthy Batman villain, Killer Moth. Cousin Paul, what did you think? This one, I like the art. You spent a lot of time on it. The most outrageous scene of the story is tying the buckets to the water wheel to put out the fire. How long did it take him to do that? And then really all the buckets are going to throw water. And oh, by the way, it's only two panels. It's the bottom of one page and the top of the next page. 
I think it's hysterical that in this guy's first appearance, you can't hire the thugs because they're like, I don't want to work for you. You're a loser. You stole my line about his signal could have just been the Riddler. It was funny. The knight in armor being empty when Robin tackled him. I, I found that pretty funny. And these are the highlights of the story. <laughs> so the thing is, Shag tells us to find our joy. And I believe it. And I love these comic books. I absolutely love Batman Family. And I am not besmirching anyone who is a creator. The thing is, we have to remember, these books were monthly. There were probably three or four stories in each issue. Someone created the Joker, the Riddler, Catwoman, Two-Face, Scarecrow. All of these are fantastic villains. You see them and you get what they're about. The Signal Man. What does that even mean? There's a reason he hasn't been in a movie or anything. <laughs> yeah, Sean. <laughs> none, none of his things are even signal. Signs, <laughs> ideas. I love garish, hideous costumes that are ugly because it's visually something to look at. But even his cape, it has a moon on and stars and I guess astrological symbols which aren't signal and maybe maybe symbol man was already taken by someone i'm gonna not spend the rest of the episode talking about how dumb of an idea this is so to kind of bring it around i will say he is in one of my very favorite justice league stories ever and i'm horrible with issue numbers three issues before the two issues of 200 so mathematically whatever that is when the Earth One and Earth Two heroes have their team up and it's the secret society of supervillains yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's ultra humanite and cheetah and they work to get wow, yes, he that. is oh, in that. Man. And I can tell you the best part of him is he's drawn by George Perez yeah. and he, he's in a hospital and he escapes by like removing the letters of St. Ignatius Hospital or something like that. But he puts out the letters so it's only signal that's left glowing. <laughs> so right there, I told you signal man's best achievement, which was what, 30 years after this story. I ribbed on dinner theater and showboat theater. Again, that's not in a mean way. I was in live theater in the Hanover Little Theater, which we called the Hanover Incredibly Little Theater because it was small. So that's me just playfully jesting. I will say, one fantastically brilliant, and I mean this sincerely, part is when they're at the movie studio and they're making the Robin Hood movie and they're shooting arrows at Batman. He grabs a sign and the sign says, quiet while shooting. <laughs> yeah, that is cool. I love that because the arrow is right there after quiet. I loved that. And I think I have run out of things I love about the story. <laughs> well, next to the giant microscope, for some reason, they have in this giant exhibition hall, a statue in honor of the traffic department. There's a giant <laughs> traffic cop statue that Batman climbs up on to knock him off. I thought that was pretty humorous. Is this a signal that we're done talking about the story? <laughs> I'll give you the signal that let's move on to the Bat Timeline. In the Bat Timeline, we're going to take a look at the other titles that DC published this month and what the rest of the Batman family was doing at that time. Thanks, of course, to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. So these are the books that were on sale in February of 1976. So first up is Batman number 275. This one, unfortunately, is not on DC Universe, and I didn't feel like going and digging it out, but it's got a pretty cool cover. Batman, for some reason, is in like a soccer goal, and then people with motorcycles are racing at him. And I just want to say there is no Brave and Bold this month, unfortunately. The next issue is Batman's Detective Comics number 459, and this is is quite a dramatic cover. There's a dead body on the floor 
And Alfred is opening the door and saying, the police are coming, sir. And Bruce is saying, Alfred, you've got to take the rap for this murder. Dun, dun, dun. So I read this issue last night on DC Universe, Sean, because I was intrigued by the cover and was happy to discover, besides a Marty Pasco story, it has art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. And it's actually a mystery, a murder mystery, combining a 10-year-old murder with a current one. It was a pretty good story. I did enjoy that one. And then there's a Man Bat story in the back, which we'll see Man Bat not that long. I think only three or four issues we'll see Man Bat and Batman Family. And it was drawn by our friend Pablo Macros. Next up is the Joker, number seven, with a special guest star, Lex Luthor. And this one is another one written by Elliot S. Magan. And this one is a bonker. I mean, the whole Joker series in general was bonkers, but this one is especially bonkers as Luthor and Joker don't swap brains, but they swap personalities. So Joker becomes analytical, super smart genius, and Luthor becomes crazy like the Joker. And it is just a riot. And the next one is Justice League number 130, which is a one panel flashback starring (laughs) Batman. And you can thank Cousin Paul for that because I didn't catch that one. And unfortunately, there's no world's finest this month. If we go on and use our allowance, Sean, what are your choices this month? Man, you guys better get your Twinkies, your Charms Blow Pops, your snack of choice, because I am ready to go for the next 20 minutes with what I'm purchasing. Apparently, this month, every comic book was one cent. So I was able to get 500 books with my $5. And here we go. I'll read them off. All-Star Comics featuring the Super Squad, number 60. I love the All-Star Justice Society, all of that. Amazing Spider-Man, number 156. On a clear day, you can see the Mirage. And there is a wedding, and Spidey is swinging in and stopping supervillains from interrupting that wedding. Yeah, that one's on my list. For those keeping track, that's the wedding of Ned and Betty. Ned leads Betty Brand. The next one is the Amazing World of DC Comics Special Edition, number one. And that's the Super Con from 76. And it has the stories how Superman would end the war and the Super Show of Metropolis. And this really was like the precursor to the amazing world of DC Comics. The next one is a beloved digest, Archie Comics Digest, number 17. And it's filled with Archie goodness. My next one is Flash, number 241. The Flash story is Steel, Flash Steel. And that stars Heat Wave and Mirror Master. The Green Lantern story is To Kill a Star. Rather than me go over them again, I'll pipe in when I had them on my list too. That's another Ernie Chan cover. It's a great one. Mirror Master dragging the Flash and the crowd cheering them on. And then I recall that these Green Lantern backups, that's where I first started reading Green Lantern. It was at the time where Green Lantern didn't have his own comic. The hard traveling heroes had been canceled and it didn't come back until maybe another year or two from now. And during that time, he was backup featuring the Flash. And a quick sidebar, later on in the Flash, that's where I started reading Firestorm. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I knew him from the Justice League. I wasn't around for his solo book, the first five issues. Was familiar with him, but then when he came into the Flash with that Perez art, oh my god, I was in love. Now the next book I'm picking is Four Star Spectacular. It has a Superboy story, The Secret of Krypton's Scarlet Jungle, Wonder Woman, Gunslingers of Space, but more importantly, there is a Kid Flash story called Kid Flash Meets the Elongated Man. And the most important thing about that story is it was reprinted in DC Special Blue Ribbon Digest number two. And I will do absolutely anything 
to bring Digest and Dead Man into the Batman Family <laughs> Reunion podcast. Well, I didn't pick this one because I figured you would because that's got that great <laughs> picture of Superboy punching that whatever that animal is on the front. But I actually just this week read that Kid Flash elongated man story. The next one on my list is the Freedom Fighters number two. And again, this is something I didn't have at the time. I would love to go back and get the Freedom Fighters. I might have one or two issues. And I know that somewhere down the line, Batgirl and Batwoman appear in there. Mm-hmm. So I need to get those issues. Part by Pablo Marcos, number two. All right. My next issue is Harvey Collector's Comics, number five. And it features about 108 Richie Rich stories inside. <laughs> My next pick was The Joker, which we had talked about. My next pick is Josie and the Pussycats. I loved that show. So I'm going to get the comic. The next issue is Justice League, which we talked about, the one panel Batman. Now, this is Skyjack at 22,300 miles, and it is a fantastic cover. Hawk Flashman is on the cover, a weird purple Hawk Flashman. The upper half is Hawkman, but he's purple and his arm is coming out of his arm socket. And then all the other heroes are rushing in. My next one is Marvel Triple Action number 29, To Conquer a Colossus. And that's reprinted from the Avengers number 37. My next issue is an issue I'm buying and giving away. My next issue is Sad Sack Army Life Today, number 61. (laughs) And I am going to give that to Shag because I know he likes Sad Sack. My next issue is something everyone should experience in their lifetime. And that is Secret Society of Supervillains, number one. (laughs) I know this has been reprinted a couple different times and a volume, get it from your local library. It is such a bonkers read. You know, the people writing had no idea what they were going to do from month to month to month. (laughs) I think the SSOSV has probably like 123 different members (laughs) over its course. (laughs) And almost that many writers. I had that one on my list of course. And the word I have written down next to it, bonkers. That's exactly the word I have. I would love to podcast on these issues someday because I would just then have to read them all carefully to figure out what the heck was going on (laughs) if I was going to try to explain it on a podcast. But I loved it. Two more issues to go on my list. So it is Superman number 299. And oh my God, I love this cover. So it's called The Double or Nothing Life of Superman. It's an empty Superman costume in the center surrounded by a bunch of his villains, and they are listed, Lex Luthor, Brainiac, Mr. Mixiespitalik, Parasite, Prankster, Terra Man, Toy Man, and the Kryptonite Kid. But there is another character on the cover, and I have no idea who it is. He's standing beside Parasite. So listeners, Superman number 299, if you want to look that up and let me know who that is, that would be much appreciated. I want to talk about Superman 299 too. A fantastic cover by Ernie Chan. I did want to mention two things. Number one, number 300, which is a great issue of Superman, is next month. But we won't talk about that because Batman Family is bi-monthly. But the other is that this story, Double or Nothing Life of Superman, was by the same team as this issue's main story, Mag and Bates and Swan. Oh, fantastic catch. Now, my very last issue is Walt Disney Showcase with Paul Revere's Ride featuring Johnny Tremaine. And please, 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 if you've never watched Johnny Tremaine, Watch Johnny Tremaine. Now, unfortunately, I just checked this morning. It's not on Disney Plus, but you could probably get it from your local library. It is a fantastic story. And I do not like history, so you can come at me if you want. But I like watching this movie. It's a great movie. And it is historical, and it's well worth your time. And now I want to know what Paul is going to get this month. This month, I picked Avengers number 147. And it's a story about the Serpent Crown. 
by the classic team of Engelhart and Perez. So you can't beat that. And the story title happens to be Crisis on Other Earth. So (laughs) I love Perez art and I know he's done the Avengers. I really need to get on board with his issues and, and read them. Oh, yeah, they're fun. Captain America, number 197, is part of the Jack Kirby's Mad Bomb story. I didn't get it then. I still don't get it, but it's a dynamic uh, story for sure. The reprint book I picked up was the DC Superstars, number three, the Legion stars. And it's the first time I would have read the Adult Legion story. Uh, Marvel Tales, number 67, which was another reprint book. This one reprints the first Black Widow as we know her now in the sort of skin tight cat suit that Black Widow wears. And first time I would have read that as well. At the time of this recording, movie star uh, Morbius guest starred in Marvel 2-in-1 number 15 with The Thing. I would have known him from his appearances in Spider-Man. I think I had just started picking up Marvel 2-in-1 at this time. I'm going to end with two books I did not have at the time. One was Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter number eight. I discovered Richard Dragon later after reading The Question, the Denny O'Neill question in the 80s, which I really, really liked. They did just come out with a new hardcover. I'm sure you can get it on in-stock trades of all these Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighters. The back issues aren't very expensive either, except for the, I think the one issue is the first appearance of Lady Shiva. So that one I think costs more. So the hardcover book is great and it reprints all these issues. Also Ben Turner, who was bronze tie first appears in this series as well. I think all of it written by Denny O'Neill. And then the final one I'm going to end on is uh, UFO Flying Saucers number 10 by Gold Key. So I'm not sure if there's anything good on the inside of this, but the cover is sort of a painted cover with no attribution on mics, unfortunately, with a giant robot bat flying over the city asking us if UFOs are living creatures, machines, or an alien hybrid. I didn't see very many of these growing up. If I did, they went over my head, but that is just a cool looking comic right there. I would like to read that one. Phew. Okay. So Sean, you ready to move on to our fourth story? What? Oh no, there is no fourth story this time because of that reduction in page count. But we do get four stories next issue. So hang on, faithful. You get a break this month from our long podcast. So (laughs) one less story, one less synopsis you have to listen to. (laughs) We do appreciate every coming. I do want to say before we leave, most of you know, Running the Fire and Water Podcast Network has gotten more costly over the years as more and more shows have been added. So if you're enjoying what you hear on the show or any of our other shows, please consider becoming a patron. We can't all be Bruce Wayne, but any small amount you can give helps defray the cost. To find out how, to go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts, and thanks. Now, we are going to play a couple of podcast promos, and when we return, we will read your listener feedback. Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. The Justice League wouldn't help him, so Batman formed a new team. These people of power are all looking for something, be it their past, or a purpose, or simply somewhere to fit in. 
These are the heroes for a troubled age. They are the Outsiders. We are the Outsiders. Covering Mike W. Barr's 1983 series from the very beginning, as they face villains no other team can, like Agent Orange, the Force of July, and the Nuclear Family. <laughs> Puns. This is The Outcasters, a Batman and the Outsiders podcast. Look for us with The Huntress Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or listen at our website, thehunterspodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at BatOutcasters. We are the Outcasters because to live outside the law, you must be honest. Welcome back. We are now going to read and respond to your listener feedback. As a reminder, please leave your feedback over at fireandwaterpodcast.com or send us an email at batmanfamilyreunion at gmail.com. First up is first-time commenter, our cousin Harold Wallen, who says, I am enjoying your podcast, and I paused it to respond to your question about whether anyone listening ever ordered those Revolutionary War figures. Yes, I was one of the suckers who did. They arrived in a tiny box, and I was puzzled as to how it could possibly contain 200-plus soldiers until I opened the box and I saw that they were maybe an inch tall, if that, an ugly shade of green and so poorly molded that it was hard to figure out what most of the figures were supposed to be. They went into the garbage that night. It was the first and only time I ever ordered anything that was advertised in a comic. I learned from this experience and instead of wasting money on things like sea monkeys or x-ray specs, I wasted it on things like pizza and comics instead. <laughs> oh, thanks, Harold. That is exactly the kind of story we want to hear at the reunion. I never bought these and Sean didn't either, but that is a great story. So thank you for sharing it. I never bought those, but one time I sent away for a decoder ring from Ovaltine. And oh my God, <laughs> I was so disappointed. <laughs> but next up is Network All-Star Rob Kelly taking a break, Mashcast and Fade Out. And he says, fun show, boys. That cover is a very strange hue. I see it more as a deep, deep maroon. But for a Christmas issue, what's wrong with bright red or green? Regarding the justice is for everyone PSA, I think the issue with the kid is the creeping up lighting. That's always a shorthand for someone being weird or suspicious. So even when it's applied to a kid, it looks off. Neil Adams was slash is a genius, but once in a while, his adherence to realistic photographic style lighting didn't work well in comics form. Regarding the toy ad, that Super Friends car is the holy grail for a lot of superhero toy collectors. I never had it, and if you find it on eBay now, it's like several thousand dollars. On a related note, we do have a Patreon, <laughs> Fat Man. Now, there's a concept that aged super well. Hmm? He goes on to say, this show is a continually joyous addition to the network. Thank you so much, Rob. Yeah, thanks, Rob. It's really nice. Also from the network, we get Siskoy, who's the host of Uhatmu and Gimme That Star Trek. He asks the question burning in all of our minds, is a diamond lily an actual flower or something? Marvel also has a diamond lil who's a member of Gamma Flight. 
He says, my Google foo is strong and I can have that answer within seconds, but instead I'm trying to get into the listener feedback section. So using my own Google foo, I did find out that yes, indeed, it is an actual flower. And I will quote, the diamond lily, genus Nerine, that was my French accent, Siskoi, is a bulb native from South Africa. And this jewel from the late autumn is called diamond lily as the petals reflect light and shine brilliantly and gracefully like diamond dust. Captain Entropy then adds that diamond lil also known as Diamond Tooth Lil, see the Wikipedia entry, is the non de joie de vie of two Austrian immigrants to the North American West. They both had diamond insects in their teeth. One sang, one ran brothels. And now I know why I was given this to read. <laughs> Captain Entropy then says, now it is associated with tough, sexy dames with raucous lifestyles. Mae West wrote a play of the same name and starred in it. The U.S. Army Air Force named a B-24 Liberator Diamond Lil. In Vietnam, a young airman on a B-52 named Diamond Lil shot down a MiG jet fighter back when B-52s had gunners for self-defense. That particular aircraft was on static display at the U.S. Air Force Academy in the late 20th century. And Captain Entropy will check back in to field any questions. Well, I think we can officially award Captain Entropy the Diamond Lil Expert <laughs> Award. Absolutely. So next up, we have Chris Franklin, who was actually our guest in that very episode. Chris hosts Supermates with his better half, Cindy, as well as he's a regular contributor to the 13th Dimension website. Great episode, fellas, my segment notwithstanding. I have the 1976 DC Super Calendar, and it is a wonderful time capsule of the period. Mm -hmm. As was pointed out in the episode and Rob's feedback, the Super Friends Dune Buggy, one of the absolute holy grails of all grails, even if it's kind of rough and dopey looking. That's part of the charm. Speaking of toys, I may have to disown Martin Gray myself for calling the $6 million man Steve Austin doll rubbish. Just never say that at a toy show, Martin. I would fear for your safety. I guess we won't be saying glory to Gray now. Anyway, Chris goes on to say, I appreciated the spotlight on Pablo Marcos. After not seeing his work in comics much after a certain point, I did see his name on those comic style YA classics adaptions. Glad to hear he's still with us. So I'm glad somebody saw those adaptions. That's cool. And then finally, he says, I do agree with Sean about the cover. It's not bad as far as the box covers go. At least Chan creatively breaks the format a little bit. But it's definitely one of those bait and switch covers. We need a bat bobsled, dagnabbit. Here, here. I agree. Both as a toy and a real life bobsled. Then Captain Entropy comes back with, great episode, gentlemen. All of these stories had their appealing aspects. Charming new characters or great Jose Delbo art. Sorry, Rob. That said, none of them will make it into my top 10 stories starring these members of the Batman family. That's okay. There isn't a living embodiment of the night or vengeance or justice to be found in these pages, but that's just fine too. The heroes are all relatable humans trying to do the right thing, and I miss that. Then he says, oh, and I especially loved the ads again. And then when he's talking about the Phantom General, General Von Dort from the Elongated Man team up, he said, on a side note, not even LIDAR can explain that monocle of his. <laughs> Captain then says, can't wait to join y'all around the horseshoe pit. To which Martin Gray, glory, glory to, to Gray, Gray, says, horseshoe pit, are we in vigilante land? Then old Captain Entropy of the Horse Cavalry responds, I reckon we are, partner. The family done held the reunion of Matt West of Gotham this year, but all the kinfolk are welcome, of course. You know, the family's always had lots of folks back east, Mark. Some of y'all just come from farther back east than others. <laughs> well, 
I'll quit jawing about things everybody knows and head to the bunkhouse. This old cowpoke's plum worn out. <laughs> anyway, Martin, who we should add, has his blog, Too Dangerous for a Girl, takes a break from his banter with Captain Entropy to pipe in. Sorry for the delay in responding to the latest episode of Excellence. I'm currently on holiday with Ralph and Sue, and there are shenanigans <laughs> to be investigated. My bits were twitching like crazy. But you know, when you're with Sue, you realize that everything's all right in the world and probably always will be. I see what you did there, Martin. Good job. Regarding the issues cover, I also see that box is brown, not red at all. Maybe it's to do with what end of the print run or copies were at. Certainly mm. possible. I wonder mm -hmm. if lots of readers were disappointed in the issue that didn't have just one new story featuring Babs and Dick. Surely that was the uh, book's standard procedure. The main reason people were buying. Still, we, even with its fib status, the cover is a winner. And count me as another Jose Dalbo fan. I think Journeyman is a rotten underestimation of his talents and worth. He goes on to say, are you sure that that's a goatee on John Broom's head in the elongated man story? I interpreted it as a shadow. There are many pics of John online, so it's hard to say how he looked back then. But to me, that looks like chin shading. For one thing, it's solid black rather than light brown, like his head hair. Whatever the case, at least it's not a soul patch. I think we can all agree they are the worst. They are the Twinkies of facial fuzz. <laughs> I went back and took a second look, Martin. I, you know, I agree. It's hard to say. Still looks like a goatee to me, but you know, who knows? If anyone actually has seen John Broom's face with a goatee, please let us know. He resumes. You were asking us to suggest a new bat history section title. How about Flashbat? Stay tuned to the end, Martin. We had another suggestion on that as well. Uh, it was fascinating to hear about the life of Pablo Marcos. He's an excellent artist. Agree. We got to see his inks work uncolored in Captain Britain Weekly back in the 70s. Great stuff. I really loved his rare penciling jobs, too. I'm so pleased to hear he's with us. As a newspaper person, I was especially excited to hear that he used to be a newspaper artist, sitting near the teletype and illustrated stories. I bet he was using it to hear about people who needed help. Yeah, I like that image, too, Martin. As regard to the Robin costume designs, pish posh, the readers who submitted costume ideas would have been delighted to see their actual work in print. Martin, I am going to disagree with you wholeheartedly. And not only am I going to disagree with you, I am going to put myself on public humiliation display. Cousin Paul doesn't even know this, uh -oh. but I never sent in a Robin design for the costume contest. But when I was a kid, I definitely had ideas about that. And I very graciously designed a Robin outfit <laughs> that I will include in the gallery post. The drawing is horrible. I think the ideas for the costume is great. His utility belt is almost made of like little cartridges like Spider-Man had web fluid, but they're all different sizes around the belt. Oh, very practical. I think that's my coolest design feature. He has a huge R on his chest. It's very stylized. Like I love capes, so I gave him that. I gave him a slightly different domino mask, which you guys will see. Also, I love thigh-high boots, so kind of think like Element Lad from the Least Gin. And of course, I love his Speedo look and everything. So I will include this black and white version. I think Alex Ross, he's probably listening, he can go ahead and paint this, and I will relinquish all of my rights to, to this updated Robin outfit. <laughs> I am going to let you publish this, but that is public humiliation because it's horrible. Hector Martin, who says he doesn't see anything at all creepy about the kid in the corner of the Justice for All PSA. 
I don't know what you're seeing. Well, okay. The Robin stories and Star Spangled comics are absolutely smashing fun. And I will agree with you, Martin. I actually had two archives. And since that last episode was recorded, I've actually read the first volume and they are terrific. About to start the second volume and I really uh, am enjoying them. Then Martin confirms that that is the same Bob Rohde. Yay! Okay, Bob Rohde. Call in. We'd love to have you at the reunion. We got we got to get him in. Then he says, hang on. There was a Batman Family Digest? That makes no sense. Batman Family was a reprint format, as were the digests. Reprinting BF stuff in there is bonkers. Okay, listeners, if you don't care about digests, go ahead and fast forward an hour and 36 <laughs> minutes because I'm about to go on a digest love fest. Don't worry, listeners. I'll give him 30 seconds. <laughs> so the digest is the best of DC number 51. So it's only they only did one issue that is Batman family. There are stories that are reprinted from the actual Batman family issues that we're covering. And here, Martin, you say that Batman family was a reprint book. Part of it was, and especially the first 10 issues, but other than issue two, there were always new stories. And then after issue 11, they're all new stories. So the beautiful digest has stuff from before Batman family. It has stories from Batman family. The inside page has origins. We will cover this in the future, like as a special episode. So I won't go into each story now, although I could. But it is coming down the pike in the future. Excellent. Martin goes on to say that he hadn't realized that we were going to have cousins on individual stories rather than hanging out around for the whole show. What a good idea. We will get lots of variety from the family. Cousin Chris, as ever, was splendid. We certainly agree with that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's going to be up to the particular guest. Martin, our thinking was, you know, again, if anybody has a particular issue that they want to talk about the whole issue, they're welcome to join us at the reunion. And if people say, you know, I, I really just like this one story, that's Totally cool as well. So uh, again, everybody is welcome. Just ping us. We're keeping a running list and they should be starting around issue eight or nine is when we're going to start to have some more guests. So that'll be super fun. Finally, Martin finishes up with the observation that that fat man poem reminded me of the theme tune from Shaft. Oh, holy moly. I love movies. I love music. I love music from movies. And I can tell you one thing. Theme from Shaft is one of the best songs ever. Like, I love it. And I'm sure most of you know the song. If you don't know or if you need to be reminded, go to Spotify, go to YouTube, whatever. But the, the amazing thing about that song is it starts off and for the longest time, you think it's just an instrumental. It's not a normal pop song. Like the music builds with each instrument coming in and it's probably two or three minutes before the vocals start. And then the vocals, of course, are fantastic. That is one of my all-time favorite songs. I love Theme from Shaft. So now Martin's back on your good side. <laughs> yes. The scales are swinging up and down, left and right, front and back. But yes, he's swung around now to my side. <laughs> Paul Wildenberger says, hey, Sean said my name. Oh, he didn't forget it. So I'm not extra special. He also pronounced it correctly. So I'm not even regular special. And I know my name isn't exactly easy to pronounce to begin with. This is my solemn promise to all of the listeners. If I say your name correctly once, I promise that does not mean I will say it correctly in the future. <laughs> if I've said it wrong in the past, that does not mean I will say it wrong in the future because maybe I'll, I'll get it right. But that's my solemn promise to all of the listeners. Paul goes back to say, oh, well, I guess I still really enjoyed the episode. 
This podcast has inspired me to pick up back issues of Batman Family so I can follow along. I found about half a dozen at a convention last month, and I am hitting another convention next month. Hopefully, I will find more. I forgot how fun these books were. Paul, let us know. Take pictures of the books that you get, like even if it's 8, 16, 24, Detective, 480, whatever. I'm horrible with issue numbers. But yeah, we'd love to see your collection as you build it. I remember like that was so much fun. Like you would go to a comic book shop, dig through the piles and pull out the issues that you wanted. I still have, of course, because I'm old man grandpa, I still have my paper list in my wallet of books that I want and need. I still have maybe like 11 issues of Superman family to go. Now I also do have it on, I think it's CLZ, like on my phone, but too, like I also work off a paper list. So yeah, I love building that collection and, and yeah, I can get it on eBay and it's fun and easy, but yeah, going to a comic book shop, it's so much fun. No, that's great. I'm glad. And, and, and I'll second the notion, Paul W. Shoes a picture, picking up a book in the, or seeing a Batman family in the wild anywhere. And we'll, you know, just attach it to one of the listener feedbacks. That'll be super, super cool. Or email it to us and we'll put it in our thing. Okay, so next up is our bat sister from another mister, Lizanne Oswalt, who starts off with impressive podcast, most impressive. Well, thank you, Lizanne. I bet you say that to all the podcasts. On to the first story. One, I think if they couldn't give this guy witness protection, they could arrest him for crimes against fashion. <laughs> who wears a leopard print with a green outfit? And it's all green except for the ski cap. I refuse to call it a beanie. If it doesn't have a propeller on it, it's not a beanie. I agree with you, Liz, Ann. And I would also say if it's not called Chocolate the Moose or Humphrey the Camel, it's not a beanie. <laughs> there we go. Liz, Ann goes on to further critique Tad's outfit. His shoes are even green. Where in the world did he find green shoes? My favorite color is green, but there is no way in the world I would worry that much about my ability to color coordinate, except for that one time in college. And I got called the Keebler Ralph. And they were right. <laughs> she goes on. And then if you're going that far, would you add an orange cheetah print vest? <laughs> you're going to this much trouble to make sure all your stuff matches. And somehow the one splash of color you add is this ugly Elton John <laughs> said, notice outfit cheetah vest. <laughs> and I'll continue to point out, Tad wore the same outfit in both <laughs> issues he, he was in. Lizanne moves on to the Batgirl story. The story was decent enough. Diamond Lil must pay a fortune in reinforcing her vehicle, since not only did Barbara do that incredible stunt cycle bit, but she landed an 800-pound bike right on the roof of the car, and it didn't even dent. Fair enough. Regarding the new look for Robin, Lizanne also weighs in where the support for publishing the kids' artwork. DC could save money and do a thing for the fans. Having their artwork show up in a DC comic is cool. I like the second and the fifth costumes. The others are, well, oi. Not that Dick Grace was the exactly king of fashion back in the day. An 18-year-old running around in pixie boots. Sorry, but the Nightwing costume is definitely an improvement. He does have great legs, though. Well, that's not the part of his anatomy most fans focus on. Moving right along. This is the part of the script where Paul says, I'm supposed to talk. And I do have to let listeners know, this is going to be the first episode of Batman Family Reunion that's also available as an OnlyFans episode. Lizanne does take Dick to task for the silent sequence where he guilts the man to making a contribution. I hate to break it to Mr. Grayson. Aiming the charity box and while holding the man's hat is not charity. That's called extortion. If the man decides <laughs> to be generous and donate, great. But hang on to his hat until he donates is kind of a jerk move. <laughs> <laughs> regarding the phantom general story john broom appearing in the comic is not that strange 
After all, during the 60s, Jack and Stan would appear all the time in Marvel Comics. True. Even at one point, a bad guy held a para at gunpoint said to have Batman not survive the comic. And he was drawing it until Batman showed up to defeat the criminal. Again, one of my favorite Brave and Bold's, uh, Lizanne. And then plus all the times John Byrne appeared in his comics. So fair point. I yield to you, Lizanne. And she closes with can't wait to hear the next podcast. It was good hearing Chris on the podcast with y'all. So we thought so too, Lizanne. Lizanne, thanks for writing in. That was great. Next, we hear from Ryan E. Great episode as always, gentlemen. I've been listening since episode one, and I finally listened early enough to comment. My favorite Robin costume would be the one by Frank on the bottom right. It just looks so cool. It has like a Two-Face, Harley Quinn theme to it, which makes it that much more awesome. I also just wanted to mention how Sean pronounces Gettysburg. I just never heard it pronounced that way. I've always said Gettysburg, but maybe that's the wrong way. I'm really not sure now. Well, it's funny you should say that because I grew, I grew up close-ish to Gettysburg, maybe like 45 minutes. I don't even think it was an hour. And I do think it is a regional pronunciation of it. I think people close to Gettysburg say Gettysburg and people who are maybe like a little bit far away say Gettysburg. The best example I can think of this I lived in Lancaster, Pennsylvania for about 20 years and nearly every other person says Lancaster. And then to make it worse, there is a town in California that is pronounced Lancaster, California. But I guess if you're Pennsylvania Dutch or whatever the derivation is, it's Lancaster. So I think it's probably the same thing with Gettysburg. (laughs) Whoa, thanks for dropping that. Gettysburg slash Gettysburg and Lancaster slash Lancaster knowledge, Sean. By the way, a little surprise for you, Ryan E. is actually a real part of the family. He is my nephew and he's in college at the University of Maryland, and he has been super supportive of me and the show over the last few months. He's listened to every episode as we've gotten started, and I've really appreciated his encouragement. In fact, I hope to have him on the show at some point in the future. It's funny you talk about your nephew and Gettysburg, Gettysburg, Lancaster, Lancaster, because where I grew up, we pronounced R-Y-A-N as Charday. <laughs> so number one Joker fan, Rob McCarthy, pipes in with two points. He says, I got to back Martin Gray on the 40s Robin being super fun. It's no Captain Marvel Jr., but it's cool. Also, Joker number six is the weakest one in the series. At the beginning, Sherlock Holmes is fictional, but by the end, he's real. And they never bring it up again. Malik Richardson says, any chance there might be a Batman, the Brave and the Bold podcast for the animated series? Chris Franklin responded back. He says, not promising anything, but ask me again in a few years. Hey, Chris, Batman, the Brave and the Bold featured Shazam, the Golden Age Flash, had a musical episode, (laughs) and also featured Dead Man. So I am putting in my requests for, at the very least, those four episodes, (laughs) because I love that show. It's fantastic. Three of my all-time favorite characters and a musical episode, ah. I need to be on that show. <laughs> there you go. Finally, network co-founder, the Irredeemable Shag, and the host of uh, the JLI podcast, as well as his newest effort called Once Upon a Geek, drops by with a suggestion. Hey, Paul and Sean, listening now, another great episode. Thanks, Shag. For the Bat History segment, how about calling it Family History or Family Tree? Keep up the great work. I'm going back to the reunion now to finish the episode and the baked beans. So, Shag... And Martin and anybody else, I think Sean and I discussed it a little bit and we are going to make a little tweak. We're going to combine 
Shag's suggestion, and we're gonna, I think we're going to call it Bat Family History, which seems to go with the theme. But if anybody has any other ideas for any of our other segments, we're always welcome to hear them. But I think we're going to go with Bat Family History. Phew. So, Sean, now you want to do your social media thing? Yes, absolutely. We have Facebook likes and comments and all of that kind of thing from Max Romero, Mike Thomas, Mike Jameson, Terry O'Malley, Ruth Sutherland, Paul Wildenberger, Brian Linton, Herschel Mimas, Clinton Robison, Jay Campbell, Dorian Gray, and Chris Shag and Rob, all from the network. We're going to go over to Twitter, and I'm going to remind you, if I do not mention your name, you are extra super special. If I get your name wrong, you are one of the best people I have ever met in my life. If I do miss you, please let me know so you can be included next time. Send me a private message or Facebook message or whatever you want. Uh, email us to the Gmail, anything you want. So on Twitter, we have Tim Price, the pod crasher, Liz Ann Oswald, Michael Thomas, It's Your Man, a comic book discussion podcast, Siskoid, Captain Freakout Psychedelic Radio, Martin Gray, Superman Move Men, Mountain Comics, Digest Cast, For All Mankind SF, Treasury Comics, Fire and Water Network, This Lightsaber Kills Fascists, Mike Deans, Firestorm Fan, Irredeemable Shag, Ed Moore, Chris, Earth 2 Chris, Tony Wolf, Dr. Pop Culture BGSU, Maz, Justin the Fanboy, and Sean, not me, Sean, S-E-A-N, you know, the cool way to spell it, like Sean Connery. All right, well, thanks again for all of you who are helping spread the word about the Batman Family Reunion. Again, if you're interested in a particular story or a, a issue, let us know and we'll try to slot you in. But Sean, I think... That's going to do it for episode five. I am starved. I am going to go back and to get some corn on the cob. Corn on the cob. I'm going to get some chicken corn soup. Oh, that's even better. Thanks for listening. We will be back the first week in June to play some cornhole and review issue number six. That one has Batgirl in the Wild West, Robin meeting a mysterious new foe, and a vintage gold mage story written by the brother of a convicted murderer. These reunions get rough sometimes. See you next month. See you all the Bat King folk next month.